Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. Today's CFW Walther sermon is from the second Sunday of Easter and is based on John 20, 19-31. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. Amen. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, one of the distinctive teachings of our Evangelical Lutheran Church is that the Christian Church and its called servants have the power to forgive sins. Our church has never, shall we say, timidly and ashamedly, but rather with great earnestness and joyful resolution, confess this to the world. We read in Luther's small catechism, confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution, that is, forgiveness, from the pastor as from God himself not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. The pastor is then commanded to ask each penitent, Do you also believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? Whereupon the penitent should answer with a confident yes. In the year 1530, Lutheran princes, lawyers, and theologians were called upon in the name of our church, to present their confession of faith in Augsburg before the emperor and the realm. Even there, they in no way denied the teaching of the power of the church to forgive, but openly confessed it as a precious treasure of the correct, true evangelical teaching. We read in the 25th article of the Augsburg Confession, Our people are taught that they should highly prize the absolution as being God's voice and pronounced by God's command. The power of the keys, Matthew sixteen nineteen, is set forth in its beauty. They are reminded what great consolation it brings to anxious consciences, that God requires faith to believe such absolution as a voice sounding from heaven. For example, see John twelve twenty eight to 30. They are taught that such faith in Christ truly obtains and receives the forgiveness of sins. You see that our church, in her glorious basic confession, attaches such great importance to the doctrine of absolution that he who renounces this doctrine cannot possibly have the same spirit as our fathers who claim the name Lutheran. As you know, those who deny absolution picture it as something false and dangerous battling against it in every possible way. They explain this, relic, this doctrine as a relic of the papacy, an invention of 
tyrannical priests, a pillow for carnal, secure people who do not wish to be converted. Perhaps many a weak Christian has had doubts raised by this blasphemous language. What should we do? Should we decide that our church has been wrong in this point? Should we renounce it and start a new reformation of the 19th century? Far be it. If we search God's word, we would find that in it also this teaching our Lord stands upon the unchangeable foundation of the divine word, and that all who fight against this teaching fight against Christ, against his word, against his merit, and against his true church. Because our text offers us the opportunity, let us explore this more closely. John 20, beginning at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples, when they saw the Lord, were glad. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold this forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So far our text. Scripture has three main passages in which the doctrine of absolution has its real foundation. The first is contained in Matthew 16, the second in Matthew 18, and the third in our text for today. On the basis of our text, permit me to show you that by this error, one, the clearest words of Christ are contradicted, two, the complete atonement of Christ is denied, and finally, three, men are robbed of the greatest and most necessary comfort. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you have given your believers the authority to absolve their brothers and sisters from their sins in your name. You have especially instituted the office that preaches the reconciliation. Graciously protect us that we do not haughtily and self-righteously despise your comforting institution. Recognizing your love to us in it, May we use it to the comfort and salvation of our souls. To that end, 
Bless the present sermon for the sake of your death and resurrection. Amen. The error of denying preachers the power to forgive sins is greater than one might think. It contradicts the clearest words of Christ. After his resurrection, Christ said to the apostles, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the sins from any, it is withheld. John twenty twenty three. Quite a while before his death, Christ had said the very same thing to Peter, and then to all the disciples. To Peter he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew sixteen nineteen. And a few days later, Christ repeated these words to all the disciples when he said, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew eighteen eighteen. In these words, the power of forgiving and retaining sins is so clearly conferred upon the church and her servants that it needs no proof. Those who deny the church this power commit a great sacrilege. They contradict God's Son to his very face and call his words lies. They commit the very sin by which Satan misled men when he said, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Genesis 3.1 The words of the Son of God are so clear and powerful that even the enthusiasts often act as if they also believe in the office of the keys. But be not deceived by such admission. They say that Christ gave the apostles only the power to reveal the conditions under which a person should receive or be excluded from the forgiveness of sins. But who has ever heard that one forgive sins by stating the conditions under which he could receive forgiveness? That is not explaining Christ's words, but refuting it. Not expounding, but perverting it. Not opening its sweet comfort, but taking it out and locking it up. In short, treating it as a joke, treading it underfoot. But they say, where did the apostles absolve us to do the preachers of the Lutheran church? I answer, it is true that at the time of the apostles, there were no chancels from which the formula of absolution was read. True, they had no confessional where the hand was placed on the head of those who wanted to go communion and the forgiveness of sins pronounced after their confession. Although we do not find this method of procedure, this rite or ceremony, the office of the keys in the apostolic church, we find the same facts. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6. What else is this but a public absolution that Paul pronounced upon repentant Christians? Yes, whenever the apostles assure the Christians, for in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God through faith, Galatians 3.26, for by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8, and so on. What else is this but the Lord saying to the man sick of the palsy, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Matthew 9, 2. 
Furthermore, when Ananias said to Saul, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Acts 9. What else is this? But as if Ananias had said, Let me absolve you. The apostles gave themselves the power to forgive sins, and they also exercised it. In 2 Corinthians 2, we read that an incestuous person was punished by the whole congregation so severely that he stood at the brink of despair. What did the Apostle Paul do? He wrote the fellowship and following to the congregation. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, 6-8 and 10. My friends, can it be more clearly stated that the apostles in Christ's stead and in the name of the congregation actually forgave sins? This evidence is so clear that many foes of absolution dare not deny that at least the apostles had the power to forgive sins and used it. But they question, how will one prove that today's preachers of the gospel also have this power? Does not St. Paul say in another passage, are all apostles? 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-nine. I answer, it is true There is a great difference between an apostle and a present-day minister of the church. The apostles were infallible. Present-day ministers are not. The apostles had the power to do miracles and prophesy. Present-day ministers do not. The apostles were called directly by Christ. Present-day ministers are called mediately through men. The apostles had the call to go into the world. Present-day ministers are limited to the field of the congregation to which they are assigned. But as far as the office of preaching of the gospel is concerned, there is no difference. Or does the word of the Lord, preach the gospel, apply only to the apostles? Does the command, believe them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, apply only to the twelve? Does his command, this do in remembrance of me, Apply only to the chosen disciples? No. Speaking of those to whom they would preach, Christ especially said, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. As certainly as that command to teach, baptize, and celebrate holy communion concerns the church of all ages, as certainly as all that was commanded, the disciples should be kept so certainly is also the command and promise directed to the church of all times. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. John twenty twenty three. And just as certainly do the words of Matthew 18 apply to the Christians and churches of all times. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Matthew 18. I say, 
as certainly as these words are directed to the Christians and congregation of all times, just so certainly are the words that immediately follow. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This great error is so ruinous because it also denies the complete redemption of Christ. It is true, my friends, that the sectarians also express the truth that Christ has completely redeemed all men. One dare not, however, let this blind and persuade him to believe that they actually believe and preach this truth. It is only too clear that if they express this once, they deny this truth a thousand times by the way they teach salvation. For what does this mean? Christ has completely redeemed us. It means that Christ has done and suffered everything for us that we should have had to suffer and do in order to be saved. We do not have to blot out our sins. Christ has already blotted them out. We do not have to reconcile God. Christ has already reconciled him. We do not have to merit God's grace. Christ has already earned it for us. We do not have to fulfill the law for our salvation. Christ has already fulfilled it. We do not have to procure a righteousness that is admissible before God. Christ has already procured it. We do not have to conquer death, the devil, and hell. Christ has already conquered them for us. We do not have to earn our own worthiness in order to enter heaven. Christ has already earned it for us. In short, we do not have to complete the work of our salvation. Christ has already completed everything, draining the cup of our deserved suffering to the very last drop, paid our debt to the very last penny, and done the will of God to the very last letter. Now what can we conclude? This, that this can, yes, must, be preached to all men. Preaching the gospel is merely saying to all men, Sinners, rejoice! Christ has already blotted out your sins. Christ has already reconciled you with God. Christ has already earned God's grace for you. Christ has already fulfilled the law. Christ has already procured a righteousness for you, which avails before God. Christ has already conquered death, hell, and the devil. Christ has already earned the necessary worthiness for your entrance into heaven. In short, Christ has already completed the work of your salvation. Do not suppose that you must first reconcile God through any suffering and atone for your sins. Do not suppose that you must do good works, that you must save yourself by your repentance, by your remorse, by your improvement, by your struggles, by your wrestlings. No, this has already taken place. You should merely receive what Christ has already done and suffered for you. Appropriate it. Comfort yourself with it. Believe it. Walk and remain in the faith, and finally, be saved through this faith. You see, since Christ has completely redeemed all men, the gospel is nothing else than the preaching of the forgiveness of sins or announcing it to all people, to which God himself says his yea and amen in heaven. In a word, it is a general absolution that he has brought by men to the whole world, sealed with Christ's blood and death, and confirmed by God himself through his glorious resurrection. Just because the gospel is an absolution for all men, because of the completed redemption of the world, 
A preacher can and should assure every person who desires forgiveness that in God's name his sins are forgiven. What do they do? Who deny the preachers of the gospel the power to forgive sins? They deny them the power to preach the gospel to all men in its true meaning. They deny Christ's complete redemption, that is, the preaching of the gospel. Yes, they who deny the power of forgiving sins lack faith and the true knowledge of that perfect redemption. If someone believes that Christ has blotted out the sins of all men, how can he take offense when a preacher or a layman says to one who confesses his faith in Christ, Thy sins are forgiven thee? If someone believes that Christ won grace for all men, how can he take offense when a preacher of an ordinary Christian assures a person who believes this, Have you found grace? If someone believes that all men are already reconciled through Christ's death and justified by God the Father through his resurrection, how can he be surprised that in God's name, through absolution, this is actually given him by the preacher or a Christian brother, and that nothing is asked of him but to accept it in faith as though he heard the voice of God himself? Our church teaches, in all its purity and fullness, that Christ has completely redeemed all men, that a person is righteous before God and will be saved alone by grace through faith. For that reason, our church has also held fast to the precious doctrine of absolution. As long as the doctrine of justification alone through faith shines brightly in our church, so long it will not let the comfort of the absolution be taken away. However, if one does not have the article of justification alone, by grace through faith and its purity, infernal darkness must enter. One must deny the power of absolution, and with it, the perfection of Christ's redemption. Finally, this error is so great because it robs men of the greatest and most needed comfort. Permit me to speak to you of this. It seems as though there would be sufficient comfort left, even if the absolution were rejected. Do not all the opponents of the absolution have the gospel? Do they not also have baptism, the Holy Supper? It is true, they have these, if they have not denied and rejected these things according to their essence. However, because they reject the power of absolution, they remove the comfort that they all contain. Is not the comfort that lies in the gospel this, that the gospel gives forgiveness of sins to all who believe it? Is not the comfort which lies in baptism this, that baptism works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God's delay declare? Is not the comfort of Holy Communion this, that in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation are given us? But the opponents of absolution take this comfort, the very heart, out of all these means of grace, and leave their hearers nothing but the empty shell. Do not suppose that I accuse the sectarians of something of which they are not guilty. Sad to say, it is only too true. Do not they themselves publicly say, Whoever relies on the mere word has a dead faith? The letter kills. 
The Spirit, the Spirit who makes alive must do it. Do they not even blasphemously teach that about holy baptism? Do they not say, how can washing with water help you? That is a powerless ceremony. The Spirit, the Spirit must do it. And do they not speak just as contemptuously of the Holy Communion? Do they not say, what does the eating and drinking of Christ's body and blood profit you? Must you not partake of his spirit, which is the true nourishment of your souls? My friends, do not believe that only the rejection of absolution is involved in the question whether a preacher has the privilege of daring to say to you the words, I forgive you your sins in the stead of Christ. No, this denial has a deeper foundation. It deals not only with the question of whether the Word of God is merely a direction to turn Christians and whether the holy sacraments are merely powerless ceremonies, but whether both Word and sacraments are actually the means, the tools, the hands through which God offers, gives, and seals to us grace and the forgiveness of sins. The question involved is whether a person can actually rely on the word of the gospel and the promises that are united with the sacraments as on God's voice, even if one's heart and conscience says no to God's promises and condemns us. It therefore confirms the highest, the greatest comfort we sinful human beings most need. Though the sex may reject this comfort, let us hold the more firmly to it, Though false teachers may despise us for doing so, let us not despise God, who has given us this means for imparting and assuring us of his grace. Though enthusiasts may rely on what they do and suffer and experience, on their prayers, on their struggles and wrestling, on their self-denial, on their visions, on their feelings, on their repentance and sanctification, we will rely on what God has done for us and what he gives us in his word and holy sacraments. Undoubtedly, also among the sects, there are many true children of God who are in the state of grace and will be saved. But they will not be saved through their great exertions, nor through their many works, nor through their prayers, running and chasing, but alone through this that they find no peace in all their efforts and finally come before God naked and destitute, relying alone on the word of grace. Let us therefore not wait until we are nearly in our last hour to reject all our doings, works, righteousness, and worthiness before we hold fast alone to the word and sacraments. Let us even now begin to throw this ballast overboard so that our little boat does not sink in the storms of temptations and death. Let us build on that word that announces grace to all in preaching and imparts to us especially in the absolution. Let us build on our baptism by which we have been received into God's covenant of grace, for this covenant stands firm forever. Let us build on the comfort of the Holy Supper whenever we partake of it. There, Christ gives us his body and blood as pledges that we share in his redemption. That gives us that comfort, which will remain even if our heart condemns us. That gives us the very comfort in our hour of death, 
even if our whole life accuses us and the world and Satan appear against us. That gives us comfort for the day of judgment. For God will, he must, keep what he has promised. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.